0: One of my beliefs is that you should drive cars, even if you have a bit of a collection. They should be enjoyed by everyone, keeping something on the road for a lot of other people to enjoy. I think Sir Stirling Moss still holds the record for it. I just can't fathom how he averaged nearly 100 miles an hour. I was sitting around talking to Norman. His stories were just incredible. And he just used to light up a room. Just a brilliant, brilliant man.
1: The Chubb Interviews with Jody Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance expert insurers of your most valued possessions established since 1882 hello and welcome back to the latest episode of the Chubb interviews i'm jody kidd in this series we talk to fellow classic car lovers exploring the personal stories of the people who inhabit this wonderful world Thanks so much for all your great feedback following our podcast from the Concourse of Elegance at Hampton Court Palace way back in early September, which seems like ages ago already. I know loads of you have only just discovered the Chubb interviews and you're catching up from the beginning of the series. There are plenty of episodes to choose from, so enjoy. Now, before we introduce our special guest, it's time to say hello to my co-host. This month, I'm joined by the guy who owns probably the coolest classic car showroom I know, the factory at the Duke of London. It's Merlin McCormack. Hi, Merlin.
2: Hello, Jodie. How are you doing?
1: I'm very, very good. So tell us about this incredible showroom of yours, which is called the factory.
2: The factory belongs to my business, Duke of London. We founded the business about five years ago now and we kind of outgrew a couple of spaces in a very short period of time. So we decided beginning of last year to go on the hunt and find ourselves a premises that we could kind of turn into a bit of a classic car hub just out of sheer frustration of not having anywhere in London to go. So we're based in Brentford in West London. We've got 51,000 square foot of beautiful old Art Deco warehouse face. We've opened a pizza restaurant within the showroom. Kind of wanted a safe space for people to come and hang out with no bias. Doesn't matter whether you turn up in a mini metro or a Koenigsegg. We don't. We really have no angle on it. All's welcome. And there's a lot of events that we host here as well. Again, for everybody. So driving movies, charity coffee mornings for car meets and things. So yeah, we have to get you along.
1: Oh my God, it sounds amazing. So people just basically can go there, sit down, have a drink, have a pizza. Because I've seen pictures of that. and am yet to have come up. It's the coolest building. I mean, it really is amazing. You've done such an incredible job. And what did it look like when you first bought it?
2: The structure was there. That's probably the politest way of putting it. The building had been abandoned in 1999. It had been bought by a developer who still currently owns it, and they'd boarded it up. It was a massive labour of love, but we've got there in the end.
1: Is it a family-run business?
2: My dad and my brother run a restoration business on site called Romance of Rust within one of my buildings, Um, and they are traditional sort of panel beaters, proper old-fashioned craftsmen. And sadly, they're not making many more of them, so they're trying to keep the trade alive. And they see restoration projects through from start to finish and do all sort of manner of other works as well with architectural metalwork and things like that. We've also kind of tried to balance it out a bit, so we've opened a gym here called Kings of the Wild Frontier, where there's a great guy called Sam Village who heads that up, focuses just on training racing drivers. Daniel Ricciardo was his main client for the majority of his career, and he's decided to go at it alone now so he's branched away from working for teams and has set up his own thing here where he's still independently training a lot of uh, f1 and f2 drivers
1: i was at fiorano and i was racing at the ferrari racetrack there and it was when michael Schumacher had a house that was literally on the edge of the track and i was doing a fashion shoot and they allowed me to go into the house to change my outfits and of course i was like This is Michael Schumacher's house. I am going to have a little nose around. But I went upstairs to where he's got his gym and he had the most extraordinary device, which was you put your head in this thing that looks kind of like very bizarre, very kind of like um, lots of wires and things like that all off it. And it strengthens your neck. They've got to be so fit.
2: it's unbelievable and i mean they've really pushed their limits i think um we've kind of tried to tap into other people nearby as well so we've opened up a sort of cycling biased class as well because it's we're we're so close to richmond park with abundance of lycra nearby
1: they're taking over the world oh it just sounds amazing um and yeah i can't wait well as soon as lockdown lifts off early december i'm gonna definitely come up there and i'll bring my little lad he's just obsessed with classic cars right now merlin it's time I'm very, very excited because our special guest today is none other than David Gandhi, who is a great friend of mine, an international supermodel, designer. He's been at the top of the male modelling industry for two decades, working with all the big names, including Dolce & Gabbana, Hugo Boss and GQ. In addition to being one of our most loved fashion icons, David is, more importantly, a lover of cars. So hi, David.
0: Hi Jodes, how are you?
1: I'm really good, my lovely. How are you?
0: I'm all right with a lovely intro.
1: You can pay me later.
0: You're never normally that nice about me. I know. <laughs> I can tell you're reading that off a script.
1: I, I, just Stop it. Stop it. I was like, oh, only, uh, if only they knew. Um, right, my darling. Now I'm going to get into the intricacies because we've done many car things over the many years that we've known each other. I don't think I've ever sat down and said, you know, like who first inspired your love of cars? Was it someone or was it a picture on the wall or where did that spark come from?
0: A lot of people have sort of asked me the same question. And I'm not quite sure because none of my family are car enthusiasts. Yeah, you know, they're kind of a normal everyday purchase of a cars. You know, cars get them from A to Bs, so they appreciate a nice car, but they haven't got the passion. So there was no one really in my family that I grew up with. It just seemed to be ingrained into me from a young age. My go-kart with my little steering wheel and, and pedals and handbrake, the handbrake was the most important thing, so I could do the handbrake turns at the end of the driveway. <laughs> <laughs> um was was my love for many years i sort of grew up always with you know the love of cars i used to go and sort of there was a an old couple across the road and they had their grandson we used to go and sit in their old datsun and pretend to drive it i always had the ferrari f40 on my wall and i had xj 220 jaguar xj 220 for a while what a beast yes still still never driven one still would love to drive one
1: oh no Oh my God, they're outrageous!
0: It's all about the 80s turbo leg on those, well, not 80s, 90s turbo leg on those cars, really, isn't it? So uh,
1: it's extraordinary. It's like literally you've just lit a rocket. It's the maddest feeling. Yeah, you have to. Well, you're part of the kind of Jaguar family, so you're going to have to twist their arm. Yeah, I keep
0: getting up to Jaguar classics and seeing the the lion of XJ220s because they couldn't be driven for a while because they couldn't get the tyres from them. Uh, so I understand. No,
2: for years and years they weren't making the tyres on them, and they've they've finally now found a sort of a third way. And long last, owners can finally get them back out.
1: Merlin, have you had a few 220s come through the factory?
2: We saw one last year. They were absolutely insane. There's nothing really of that era that comes close to it. I think the, the F40's probably got a bit more drama to it. But in terms of the actual precision thrill of an XJ220, for me, nothing from that era comes close no. to it. I
0: always, I always remember the, the Jeremy Clarkson when he first drove one. And he accelerated and the, the radio came flying out.
2: <laughs> flying out. Yeah. Yes. Which
0: one says oh, a lot God. about the turbo of that car but says a bit about the build quality it was built by what they called the Saturday Club wasn't it a Jaguar that was just a group of engineers that built the car on a, their Saturdays or their weekends.
1: To be honest you don't really get in it to listen to the radio I mean if you could hear anything but the turbo hissing at you what was your first car?
0: My first car was, uh, it was a 1988 Ford Fiesta 1.1 gear, aftermarket electric windows, which didn't work. So you had to bang on the side of the door and press the aftermarket switch at the same time. It didn't really go smoothly. It just sort of jolted down as it went between the cogs. That was my pride and joy. That was my first sort of taste of freedom of driving. It was a Paul car in my, in my father's company, which was handed down to me. And then We went to go and sell it, and I think they, they put it up on the ramp, which it clearly never been up on the ramp in its year, you know, so many years. And the guy just said, no one can drive this. No one should be allowed to drive this car. It's an absolute death trap, which um, I sort of went back to my dad and sort of said, do you think it was a good idea to put your son in that car? And he <laughs> said, to be honest David, it's a 1.1. You weren't going that fast in the first place. I then got into my warmer hatch. I had a 106 XSI, Peugeot 106 XSI, which taught me everything I need to know about liftoff off oversteer. And then got into being my typical sort of family. I showed my dad a they would need a new car. I showed them a the concept of the Audi TT. You know when it first sort of was shown at the Frankfurt Motor Show, and he went, "Oh," and, and in typical father fashion, just sort of went, "Oh yeah, I quite like one of those. Get one for your mum." So we we imported one of those. That was very strange. And we we were funny story. We were, we were coming back through the Channel Tunnel. It was when the French were on strike, and there were queues all the way back onto the motorways. It just happened that my my dad had invested. He had in, he bought a load of shares in the Channel Tunnel since it. Had kind of you know the project was first started, so we were like a premium got to the front of the queue in this Audi TT that no one had seen, driving it back from Germany. So it was it was a nice little trip for a dad father trip. That was nice, and then kind of got into my Jaguars and started reviewing a few things and for for various magazines, and um, it went from there.
1: You've always been quite technical, haven't you? You've always you look at a car because I remember when we last had a chat, you were thinking about buying something i won't mention it yet because we'll bring it up later because it's one of my favorite cars. but you're really really technical you because i'm an impulsive kind of like if i like something i like i want it now whereas you really take your time don't you and you really think about it
0: yeah that makes me sound like the most boring man on earth but yes <laughs> i um I, I suppose i do jose in some ways I, I buy things passionately but i do my research on them one of the biggest things being in the men's fashion game is how do you get men to shop how do you get them online? And then you realise they spend hours configuring their new cars and researching their new cars and stuff like that. So for years, I've always been trying to get men to shop for clothing, how they shop for cars, which is never going to happen.
2: It's true. We, we, we're so easy to spend half a day just perusing. But when, as soon as it comes to that, I think we're lazy.
1: That's the difference between women. You see, I think we just, if we want a handbag, we want to get the handbag. I'm not going to sit. And, yeah, I'm just not going to hang around. Just same with the car. <laughs> like, I want it. <laughs> Um, I, I was really, really lucky. So your first kind of, I would say, major classic.
0: We found a 1960 Mercedes 190. The family virtually had to interview me for that car. It was their father's car. He, he'd he started Mercedes Benz Club and it'd been in the family for you know, since 1960. I didn't sort of beat around the bush when I told him I was going to fully restore it. Uh, nut and bolt not me of course i mean i couldn't restore anything but um you know i had had, had my specialist guys do it and uh did, that's exactly what we did and took it apart and put it back to almost how it would have come out the factory even probably slightly better completely original like even took the carpets out to put in the rubber mats which you would have had um had a five-piece luggage set made up of the the same leather for inside, which was an option at that time. Even have like the new carburettors, Weber carburettors, put the original carburettors back on. Love that car. That was my, that was my first, so sorry, I could say, into into classic car restoration. I sold that just before lockdown, actually. The first lockdown, should I say.
1: I can't believe you sold it.
0: One of my beliefs is that you should drive cars, even if you have, you know, a bit of a collection. They, they should be enjoyed by everyone, including yourselves. But I, I kind of believe that restoring cars is you're keeping something on the road for a lot of other people to enjoy. Uh, for another hopefully you know 60 years however many years to keep it on the road and um i wasn't driving it you know life has gotten you know, gotten in the way a bit and i had other car projects on the go and the car was sitting there and i just didn't have time so a lovely gentleman wanted to restore a 190 spoke to my restorer parry uh channer uh who you met jodes and parry said listen i think david might be willing to sell that if you make you know a, a decent offer speak
1: to him in the right way <laughs> exactly
0: you know i had a couple of offers on it and i have to say one of the guys i just didn't particularly like uh, yeah. <laughs> it sounds terrible
1: no um, fair enough it was like just, the people before was, you had to interview you and you should do the same the
0: guy came down with his family and they were all very, you know, all very excited about it and loved it and um yeah I mean, on my point i sold it at a very good time because prices have gone gone a little bit south since then
1: And do you think that's because of lockdown?
0: I think it's a little bit of lockdown. I think lockdown has something to do with it. But I just think there were quite a few inflated prices. Probably, I suppose, some of the German stuff, some of the Porsche was a little bit inflated. Uh, There was some bad price going around. You know, I mean, Ferraris, as we all know, are the most expensive classics. But then you know 355s 1995 you know ferrari 355s were were going for over one hundred and they've corrected to below a hundred thousand now so there was a little correction in the in the classic car market definitely so um i was a little bit fortunate and and it was one of the most expensive 190s ever sold so in the end we we did okay on that one
1: good timing
0: yes i said i'd like to say that was all down to my genius of my knowledge of cars and everything else absolutely not just just absolute absolute rubbish
1: Rubbish. oh dear well I mean it was very beautiful and I was very lucky to have that little drive in her because she was stunning that was the your testament to you of parry you know of his his hard work that you know you restored it so beautifully that dedication of of people bringing these wonderful old classic cars back to life is so important
0: yeah, Barry's working on the second one for me, Jodes, at the moment. So he's he's just finishing a uh, 1965 uh, Porsche 356 Coupe oh, for me.
1: When's that going to be ready?
0: As all classic cars, it should have been ready a year ago. <laughs> and it's going to be, it's literally done now, actually. So we're we're going off for its first debut shoot and uh it's been a bit delayed but in december which we'll we'll do the unveiling of that but that's that was my kind of the the mercedes i then did the jaguar xk 120 which we know very well joe so we spent a lot of time we
1: do we do indeed
0: restore the xk 120 to almost replicate the lightweight xk 120s that are of the racing era of sort of like the 60s it's very sympathetically you know sort of original to what jaguar would have done the porsche's been slightly different where i've I haven't, you know, the famous sort of Porsche outlaws. I haven't outlawed it in some ways, but it is very much to my specification. So it doesn't kind of follow the rules of, you know, how the car should look. The interior is a mixture of, of leather and German houndstooth. So it was, I kind of put my own twist on this car more than I have with the other cars, which are much more original. But I already know that people, Perry, have said that. He's already seen two people that have seen it just in the workstations and he's already got two other commissions from... This car, because people want it.
1: I think with your, your also your name, people would really love because we always, you know, when when we buy classic cars, it's also looking massively into the history of it, and to have one of your cars that have put your little twists and turns on it, I think will be immensely valuable. And and people in you know a hundred years time will go, oh yes, and David Gandy did this, and you know, so you're creating something. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they won't speak exactly like that. No, I'd like to think they would. But, you know, I think it's it's creating something that in the future, you know, will be probably more profitable because you've had that little bit of magic.
0: Yeah, Jodes, I, I just need your, your bit of magic driving in my XK120 again, because I haven't experienced that for a few years. Uh, so so, um,
1: so should, we, should we discuss a little bit, because our listeners out there probably have no idea what we're talking about. But 2015, you and I invited um, of guests of Jaguar to do the Mila Miglia. Explain a bit what the Mila Miglia is. We can talk about our experience.
0: Well, I'm going to get my history, my facts right now. The Mila Miglia, I think, was stopped in 1957, I think. Um, it was a race, a thousand mile race on public roads around Italy. The competitors now complete it in three days, but I believe they've, it's now four days. I think Sir Sterling Moss still holds the record for it. And he completed it in, I, th- I believe it's 10 hours. So he averaged a hundred miles an hour on public, which I was watching a documentary about this the other day. Obviously, sadly, Sir Sterling Moss has died. But I was you know, me and you have, have competed in that race. I, I just can't fathom how he averaged nearly 100 miles an hour. I,
1: I, it's it's extraordinary.
0: I like to say, I've said in other interviews, I think we're slightly unhinged both in the, our driving. So we were quite happy with both of us just flying through as fast as we could and very relaxed yeah, about it. Yeah, we
1: matched We definitely matched each other, which was wonderful because I think a lot of people wouldn't be so happy. When you're driving extreme speeds, I mean, it's the only time that you're really allowed to break the speed limit on open roads, which actually are used with people going to work and, you know, going to pick up the groceries. So your brain has got to think at three million miles an hour because there's so many different things that could happen and of course we're racing in classic cars that have drum brakes no seat belts so you know it's can get quite hairy and i have to well, say also, also Joe,
0: so like with that as well it's quite funny if you ever look at images of us doing in the millet, our heads us being both tall, our heads are about three foot over the windscreen like you don't think of that at the time but basically if something goes wrong we are the roll bar Like mine, you you do forget that, don't you? And you've got 300 other slightly unhinged people racing around in their pre-1957 cars, as you say, on public roads. So um, it's a whole different ballgame. Italy, I think, is about the only place in the world that that race could take part. The Italians are so passionate about their cars, and it's a wonderful, wonderful race. So, yes, I still have to. Unfortunately, I was supposed to do the Miller this year in, in the XK120 it got cancelled twice. We are postponing it until next year.
1: You were going to do it in your xk one. That's what it was
0: built for, Joe. It was especially sort of built for the Millet car. Yeah, absolutely. That's You know, because you know, we, we did it in the XK and there were so many things I thought, yeah, we could really... I mean, we had, you know, extra seats put in, didn't we? And we didn't have enough room, the timings, and you needed some more brake horsepower. And that's exactly what I did to the Jaguar, to my XK.
1: They had to move the seat back because I couldn't, I couldn't, the steering wheel is, oh, did they put a smaller steering wheel? I can't remember. The original steering steering wheel, it's massive. I mean, we couldn't, we couldn't get our legs in. No,
0: (laughs) so yeah. That's where I am kind of like car wise at the moment, classic wise. Anyway, I always, I always, every time I say that this is my last one. no, Yeah. And then there's a couple of gin and tonics at a late night and I find myself on piston heads or something else, which is quite a dangerous place to be looking, but I'll I'll leave it for a while. I think, I mean, the next time I see you probably in a couple of weeks and I would have bought a classic car. Uh, that's, you brought another one. Yeah. No,
1: I know. I just, I mean, listen, it's falling on deaf ears right now. <laughs> that,
0: that.
1: <laughs> uh, but Merlin was saying actually really interesting through lockdown, people were sitting on, on the internet and, you know, he had really, really good sales.
0: Oh, God, I, I, I can imagine Merlin. Yes, it just went absolutely
2: crazy. I think you're right, there with what you say about calling off. I think it was long overdue, and it's a combination of a price adjustment through sheer demand as opposed to uh, anything else as a result of the coronavirus. But my God, it's been absolutely mad. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, but I think it's instilled a sense of mortality in us all. We're all only here once and let's just do it.
1: Mm. Every single industry has been hit really bad, but our predominant industry, which is the modelling world, has is, is been really badly affected by the pandemic. Have you been doing other things? What have you been up to?
0: Yeah, James, I mean, you kind of know me. I'm a bit like yourself. Many things in many pies, You're useless at staying still. There's a, there's a lot of projects on the way. I, I kind of like the how probably people perceive the modelling side is I, I've sort of moved on from that for quite a few years now. And, uh, and every time I see a picture taken, I think someone else should be doing this, not me anymore. So, um, I have my ranges. I have my investments, um, with British startups. So that's all kind of key. I'm on the board of lots of different companies. So yeah, there's lots of kind of stuff keeping me going to be honest. Um, yes, it, it, it has affected the industry. I'm I'm very fortunate it didn't affect me too much. Actually, I kind of found that there were lots of projects that in lockdown I wanted to start and I just hadn't had the chance and hadn't had the time. So I actually sort of employed some more people and some independent people that I, I knew had lost their jobs at other fashion brands in certain areas and employed them to start the projects that I wanted to explore. So yes, things are bad, but I think there's also opportunities to be had. At the moment, I, th- I mean, i think it's in the fashion game, in the clothing game—it's accelerated how we would have been shopping in a few years' time anyway. Everyone is online, using social media so much more for inspiration and for shopping, and I think the lockdowns just accelerated that.
1: It's really, really sad, and you know, it's a really tough time. And Merlin, is that same mindset with the classic car world?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: I think throughout the kind of the back end of the first lockdown, where we were able to start getting people out again, it was more, you know, we've spent so long building this place, as I touched on earlier. We had this desperate need to get people down here. So we had to diversify pretty quickly, Driving events, driving uh, movies, predominantly in circus events and things like that, just to try and get people here. And from a marketing point of view as well, whilst they were fantastic, everything has fallen to online. So we're so heavily dependent on social media. It's kind of, it's a bizarre way of selling cars, but it, it seems to be working. People's confidence in buying over the internet or over the phone now is, is rapidly increasing because the amount of Im- imagery we have to put out there. It's really, really interesting times And not quite what we had planned, but like David says, you have to prepare for these things and gear up for it.
0: I think it can all change as well. I think this is, everyone is adapting to this certain time. You know, there's still going to be people like myself that like, I mean, I'm going to say I I love shopping, but I prefer to go out and feel a garment and, and be in the shop and have that bit of personal service. I think that's the only thing that online can't do, especially if you're buying cars, is that trust of that individual, the trust of that seller. I was even seeing, you know, during lockdown, and we were looking for a house you know people were buying houses uh, and i'm not you know sort of talking you know cheap houses here they were they were buying virtually offline they hadn't even viewed the house they were have a virtual viewing and they were you know buying it there and then which is bizarre to me i suppose that's the extremities of of what has kind of like, you know where, how online shopping is
1: yeah, it's like you're always going to have to test drive. And I think there will be a full circle where people are going to go, do you know, I want to touch it. I need to smell it. I need to, you know, and that urge is very human.
0: You can't beat the smell of a classic car. That sells me. You can't sell that on the line, Merlin, I could take it, really. That no. <laughs> a, bit of, a bit of wooden leather and a petrol and everything else.
1: Well, it sounds like Merlin, um, who I don't know, David, if you've been down to the factory, it's the most extraordinary. I'll let um, Merlin explain more.
2: So it was um, kind of a really selfish venture, to be blunt. It was somewhere that I was, let's do it for ourselves. But you know, we already had a dealership. We just had nowhere to go and hang out with all these cars that we were either selling or collecting or whatever. So we've built a, you know, this this old factory. We'll say we've built a factory. We've taken over an old factory and renovated it into a um, a
0: big sort of melting pot for car car people and creatives if you had the test track as well then that would be <laughs> no,
1: honestly that's the dream in our, the centre
0: of London built... yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, no worries and, and you know the the element also of having to look after classic cars they're not these cars that you can now plug in or you take them to the dealers yeah they, they probably need to be looked after so you know almost the concept of when you buy a car but someone looks after it someone stores it someone services it you have like-minded people get together around a track or with all their cars to so somewhere to go actually because sometimes it sounds a bit strange it's like I really want to drive the car but I don't really sometimes have anywhere to or I have to find excuses to go and drive the cars
2: it's bizarre we've we've ended up sort of one in probably 20 cars we sell up just like that in a sort of program of storage and maintenance with us people live nearby with no driveways or garages again London problems and we end up keeping the cars for them and running them up for them and a couple of our customers even offer to pay us to use their cars obviously we can't charge them for that but I can do that you just, yeah, fine. Yeah,
1: Come just... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we've definitely got to go down there. It just sounds fantastic. Um, right, we've gone so far off script, I have no idea where we are. But I've got one little question here because I want to go into our little segment that we do, which is called One Piece at a Time. What modern car are you driving at the moment?
0: I've got a Jaguar F-Pace SVR. The SVR okay. being the important part yeah. of that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. sentence. <laughs> the... the, the <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were about to say the Concept 8 or something like that. I
0: did have the Project 8 for a while. Oh, yeah. you did?
1: Yeah. Oh, I'm uh, so jealous. <laughs> yeah, I,
0: I, I reviewed that recently. I've just written a piece for Vanity Fair and and said it kind of rekindled my love of motoring a little bit, of driving. There's a lot of machinery I think we get to drive now. And I get out and it might be the fastest thing I've driven, but I didn't have much passion for it. And I just kind of felt like that almost the car was driving me rather than the other way around. But but the Project 8 is just an incredible, incredible machine. And I hadn't had a car which I would just stare out of the window for no reason at until I got the Project 8. I mean, my partner, Steph, just thought I was a little bit weird. She'd never seen that before. And I would, I would make excuses to go out on it. But I just, I just think we need, you know, I, I just going to go, go to the supermarket again. She's like, how many times have you been today?
1: Can I explain to our listeners about the Project 8.
0: So the Project 8, it's based on the very humble Jaguar XE. And they literally just let the uh, special vehicle's operations go to town on it. They shoehorned in the, the V8 5-litre, ramped it up to nearly 600 brake horsepower, all-wheel drive. I believe it still holds the record around the Nurburgring for the fastest saloon car.
1: That's quite a record to break.
0: That is quite a record to break. Yeah. So they, they, and I think the kind of story goes that they were, they went to go and break the record. They had literally a couple of laps left, you know, because there's only a certain amount of months they can race on the or you know, race on the ring to break the record. They beat Porsche and everyone else who were Mercedes, who were all trying to go for the record so everyone kind of said yeah but you know if everyone had more time i think they could have broken the record so jaguar went back the year later and broke their own record just to prove a point i think which is uh, no it's a very very special car
1: right so going back to that original question modern cars classic cars what would you choose
0: classic classic
1: yeah so, David, do you find that there 's a lot of kind of correlation between the fashion industry and the car industry, because I know that lots of car manufacturers do go and lean on members of, or designers of the fashion world
0: i 'm not sure how I quite feel about that i mean I, there 's a side where people talk about design you know they talk about fashion design and car design, maybe architecture as, as separate entities. People like Ralph Lauren, who we know is one of the best collections of cars in the world. And he, what I understand, he takes inspiration from the cars and puts them into his designs, you know, especially his watches and, and everything else. Ralph Lauren sort of bridges the gap between design, as in he has homeware, he has watches, he has clothing. I think if you have an eye for design, um, you can, and I find this with all the car designers, they can put their design to you know, a lot of different elements. Collaborations are everywhere at the moment. I mean, I'm I'm guilty of it. I've I've done many collaborations. The world seems to have gone mad. You know, you see that little X as in collaboration, and it's you know transferred to clothing brands working with musicians and actors, and it works very well if there's a traditional brand that wants to bringing a younger audience. So they will work with a brand that has you know, a much younger demographic. And of course, you're getting the best of both worlds for that brand, I suppose.
1: Merlin, you might know this um, more than myself or David, but it's something that we never really saw in the classic world, the old designs.
2: The only collaboration per se were, were kind of the, the shared use of materials like Connolly leather or Bridgel leather or Harris tweeds and things like that. It, they, they were obviously found across the range, whether it be your driving gloves, your jacket or the armrest in your, you know Jaguar for instance it's I think David makes a good point it's about introducing that tradition to a younger audience I mean Bentley recently did a collaboration with Huntsman the Savile Row tailors like you say it needs to be marketing driven to try and get younger people into them
1: right so I want to very briefly go back to the the Jaguar the XK120 you know that we were very lucky to race in the millimilia in one um, but I think we need to talk about the most famous drivers Mr Norman Dewis Um, and I know that you met him on a number of occasions and before we sadly passed away and he set a number of incredible speed records what was he like because I I never got the chance to meet him
0: I was really really sad when Norman passed and I I know a lot of people were in in the car industry but I suppose I I did get to meet him a couple of times he's the true definition of a gentleman driver I don't think they're going to exist you know guys like that anymore so you know the equivalent of a test pilot in many ways but he was testing cars for Jaguar uh, as you said, hold loads of Lansby records. He was the guy that Jaguar putting in their Jaguar E-Type to drive to, I believe, Geneva, and he had to get there and the car on the stand within a number of hours for the Jaguar E-Type to be shown to the world for the first time.
2: The rumour was that there was so much interest in it at the show that they just had to get another one there because they did, they only had one for people to take out. This was back in the day where the Geneva Motor Show you could actually drive the cars. So they wanted people to really experience this E-Type that they didn't really foresee how popular it was going to be. So yeah, the legend drove it through the night.
0: Any time I've sort of been with Norman, and you can have some of the biggest names in the industry, and we all just end up sitting around Norman listening to his stories. You know, F1 drivers and car designers, and we all sit around like little schoolboys and just listen to Norman talk. And that was the privilege of what I got to experience with Norman. The last time I I saw Norman, he was going on Top Gear to talk about the drive of the E-Type. To Geneva. I noticed a couple of his jackets looked a little bit threadbare. And at the time, we had come out, coming uh, with one of my tailors with a, a silk lining, but had all the Jaguar emblems on. And I said to my tailor, Do you think we could get Norman into Savile Row to make him a jacket? And they loved the idea. And of course, my tailor said, Absolutely. That was Simon and Harry Paul. Yeah, Norman came into Savile Row. We did a little shoot outside. He pulled up in a, I think he was in a D type or C type. I pulled up in my, my F-Type at the time and then had a few pictures taken. Then we went in and he had the measurements and they got him with, yeah his jacket for, for top gear. But again, just, and I have, we have photographers, you know, behind the scenes photographers, and they're probably one of, out of 20 years in the industry, probably some of my favorite pictures. I was sitting around talking to Norman. His stories again were just, you know, incredible. And he just used to light up a room. Just a brilliant, brilliant man.
1: What a special, special thing that you did. Really, really lovely. Um, And also, you know, he was just not only sounds so personable, but just a fantastic driver as well.
0: Uh, So humble with it. That's the side I, I loved about Norman as well. So, yeah, sadly, sadly missed.
1: No, okay um so in this podcast series we're running a special theme called one piece at a time where we ask our guests to select one prized possession that means a lot to them to bring to the podcast obviously we would be doing this in a room together but these strange times a piece of car memorabilia basically i'm going to put you on the spot what would your piece be that has a special meaning to you
0: um i think it's going to have to be um so the original when i when i renovated the x k one twenty um and obviously we've we've changed it a little bit and had a a quick shift box put on it and um i have kept the steering wheel the original steering wheel but i've kept the gear stick i've kept the or the gear stick knob should i say from the x k one twenty and i've done it with the uh one ninety as well because there's elements of the car that i just think that are still part of that car now the car has completely changed it's completely been renovated but the bits that have stayed on that car the historic items that you know how many gear shifts has that gear not been through and how many hands and everything else and i just couldn't really see it sort of go to waste i kept it and actually i've had it adapted and this will probably make you laugh into a wine stopper as in like for the cork yes when i open wine (laughs)
2: I That's now
0: love it. Put my XK1 to. So I'm actually looking at it because I would, I would like to pretend that I didn't have a bottle of wine open on the side uh, <laughs> right now, but I do. <laughs> and, um, I'm, I'm, I, yeah. I'm so surprised I'm it's not empty. Lockdown, of course. <laughs> me too, Joe, to be honest. Me too. Um, and so, and I love still using something you know, historically from the car is still being used now in the house. And it's probably something I'll pass down. You know, that's that was hopefully something I'll pass down to Matilda and grandkids and they'll be like, well, that was granddad's, that was his gear stick from his XK120. And that's probably my piece.
1: Oh, Can you do us a favour? Will you take a, a picture of it? Yeah, we'll do. Take a picture and then we'd love to post it. Or if you tweet it, we can repost it. But I'd love to see what it looks like. Well, I mean, I have to say that we could just chat forever and ever and ever, but um, I've got to say goodbye. Thank you so much for talking and sharing your stories. It's been really, really fascinating. And I think when we come out of lockdown again, you and I should be uh, heading up to Merlin's place and go and have a a pint and a pizza and and watch a movie and have a look at some classic cars.
0: Absolutely. That if, if, if there's an invite there, Merling, I'll, um, <laughs> that sounds a lovely afternoon and evening. Doors always open.
1: You've been a superstar. All right, my love. Well, listen, take care. Thank you so Jones, you much. Um, big love to the family and hopefully we'll see each other soon.
0: we Will do. Cheers, Jodes. Thanks for having me. Bye bye.
1: Merlin, isn't he lovely and so passionate about the cars, you know, he really is. And you can really tell. And I'm, you know, very lucky to be his friend. And, you know, as I said, the kind of the detail, such a superstar. And I can't wait to see the Porsche when it's finally out on the road. We would love if you could share your own one piece at a time. So you can put your pictures on Instagram or Facebook, or you can send it in an email. So Facebook and Instagram, you just have to search for Chub—that's C that's C-H-U-B-B, collector car, or for email, classiccars at chubb.com or browse chubb.com forward slash the interviews. Um, Merlin, thank you so much for being my co-host today.
2: You're most welcome. It's been such a pleasure.
1: It really has. It was just literally like sitting with a bunch of mates just having fun and hopefully we can recreate that face-to-face when we come up to the factory.
2: I look forward to it.
1: Most of all, I want to thank you all for listening to the latest podcast in the Chubb interview series brought to you by Chubb, who share our passion for classic cars. Wherever you're listening from around the world, we wish you well and we send our love. There'll be another episode very soon. And to receive every episode as it's released, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, then please review and spread the word. And don't forget to email us your stories about your most loved classics. I'm Jodie Kidd. Until next time. Bye. The Chubb Interviews with Jodie Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance. Expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882.